Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for joining me on this week's episode. And this week, we are marking the passing of the actress, Honor Blackman, who uh, passed away recently at the age of 94. She is, of course, most famous for her appearances, maybe the definitive Bond girl in Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. So we are watching Goldfinger. Joining me as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Dr. Carmen Dolly. How are you, Carmen? Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm I'm absolutely fan-dabby-dozy. Um, and <laughs> I'm really interested to know, what do you actually know about Goldfinger? Nothing. I, I don't even know who the James Bond in it is. Um, I guess it's like an old school James Bond uh, film, so probably a lot of misogyny. Um, and I have, oh, I just realised that um, uh, Goldfinger is, he was a villain from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, wasn't he? Jert Forb. It is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Jert yeah. Forb, the actor, yeah. Yeah, so I know that. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he does like to play an Ian Fleming-based bad guy, which which is very good of him. Um, <laughs> okay, so that that's really exciting then, that that because Goldfinger, from my perspective of having seen a few of the James Bonds, it's one of the ones for me that um, stands out, partly because it has one of the most iconic theme tunes, uh, partly because it has some really striking visual imagery. And uh, joining us to watch Goldfinger, our guest who has seen the film, it's Mr. Robert Woods. How are you, Robert? Hello, I am very well, thanks. I'm looking forward to this. It's been so long since I've seen this film, so I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah, how, how long do you reckon it has been since you've watched it? Oh, when did Skyfall come out? That's when I marathoned them all. Um, that was 2013, I believe. There you go. That's probably the last time I watched the film. Yeah. All right. So, so in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, uh, what can people like Carmen, who haven't seen Goldfinger, be expecting from this film? Um, Goldfinger has some of the most classic James Bond iconography and lines and um i think it's a it's probably one of the best ones to give you a good crash course into the the basics of old school james bond mm. and Fair uh, enough. yeah and just on the um the the misogyny front as as carmen touched on it um i presume that the, um well, I don't presume because I have seen it, but my memory is very fuzzy on this particular film. But I'm imagining with it being one of the 60s Bonds that that is uh, sadly very rife and a uh, part of the film. It certainly is. Um, it's Yes, it's quite overt, um, quite shocking by today's standards, I would think. Um, there, Yeah, there's one scene in particular I'm thinking of that I... Yeah feel very uncomfortable about (laughs) but um 
yeah, it's it's in there and it was accepted at the time. So mm. okay, so that's uh, that's just a heads up for any of you out there. Um, this this is a film which it does have some problematic things. Um, just just because I really cannot remember these older bonds. This isn't the one where they try and pass him off as somebody from Asia, is it? That's that's a different no. one. Oh my god! <laughs> no, that is a, that is a different one. <laughs> yeah, because um, that that one is particularly um, egregious and surprising. Uh, <laughs> it is, although it's one of my favourite ones. Still, despite all of the problems with it, um, yeah, it's it's tricky. You got to kind of keep in mind that um, James Bond, the character, is a misogynist. Um, mm. And he's played off as a lovable rogue. Um, if you can handle that, then there's some fun camp action <laughs> to enjoy. And if not, then maybe just it's best to avoid. <laughs> all right. Well, with that all being we'll said, yeah, uh, shall we watch Goldfinger? Yeah. Yep. Sing all right. The thing well, yeah, that's going to be one of the fun things. For those of you listening at home, uh, load up those streaming services and warm up your best Shirley Bassey impression as we prepare to watch Goldfinger! Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Goldfinger. And by we, I, of course, mean Robert Woods. Hello. And Dr. Carmen Doley. Hello. So, Carmen, that was your first time watching Goldfinger. What did you think? It was. Um, it was a film. Yeah. It was, uh, it, I mean, it was, a, it was a 60s movie. It's reasonably well made for a 60s movie. Like, some of the effects are a little bit... Uh, dated but it, it's reasonably well shot um the foley guy was very enthusiastic um but yeah no from a technical standpoint i thought it was it was fine it held up well um from a, a character point of view not so much like i thought the plot was fine but yeah just yeah. the characters and yeah i don't know this isn't the sort of film i'd actually go out and, and seek and watch myself um, I thought from a technical point of view, it was fine, but uh, yeah, characters and, and relationships, not so much. Yeah, uh, Robert, I, I don't know about you, but for me watching this, I was surprised by how little substance there was to the film. Oh yeah, there's, uh, it's always surprising going back and thinking about um, what we would expect from a James Bond film today and how much an action set piece needs to do and uh, how sophisticated and action-packed they are when you look back at the original ones and the action is really just two guys exchanging judo chops and <laughs> um, some occasional driving and a car following quite fast and that's, yeah. that's enough for, for the 60s action. Mm. Plane, plane falls into water and then suddenly explodes for some reason. Yeah, that's <laughs> glorious. I love it. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's... It is, it's quite kind of, well, I, I don't want to say quaint, mm. but it does feel, uh, I don't know, like if it was a simpler time, it didn't take as much to um, entertain the masses. I, I think it's it's interesting trying to think back to 
the the mid 60s when this film was out and and this was a massively successful film this was a film they had to have on like 24 hour screenings just to get people through because people kept going back and watching this film um so trying to think of an environment where it was like and i think back to films of, of that time period that i've watched which i suppose are a bit more I suppose most of the films I've watched from that time period are kind of Hitchcock films and they tend to be thrillers, but they tend to be a bit visually slower paced. They don't tend to have the, the action or the almost the ridiculous uh, non-reality of cars with ejector seats and machine guns that fire yeah. out of the back and things like that. So it, it, Goldfinger is a very striking film in, in that respect. Like it, it, even 50 plus years on, it's it still ticks along. It's got some good action to it. It does. It's 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 um my friend that I watched the Bond marathon with um always likened the James Bond action to music theater, in that they out of out of the other action franchises, James Bond always seemed to be slightly campier um, and take place in a slightly more fantastic world. Mm. Um, oh, they've got all these gadgets and um, uh, fun quips, and it's uh, uh, it's also very structured. There's always an opening sequence. There's always an eleven o'clock number. Mm. There's always um, uh, the little character beats, and then everything is always broken up by um, action set pieces. Um, and the James Bond films today still follow that formula pretty rigidly it's just that the way they do it is uh, stylistically is, is very very different yeah and, and uh, the story is quite simple as as we've said um it, to be honest the story is more here's a clever idea for a baddie uh, and let's let's sort of slowly unpack what it is that's literally it the, the plot is kind of just there's this guy called goldfinger he's got a really clever idea to um sort of enhances riches by diminishing the United States uh, gold bullion to being um, unusable by making it super irradiated. It's, it's a great idea. But in terms of the actual story of James Bond going around and actually trying to prevent it, this feels a bit, he feels very much a passenger in this film. I don't know if you felt the same, Carmen. He kind of feels like he's just there for the ride like us. Yeah, he, I mean, an obnoxious passenger, certainly. Mm. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he doesn't really have a whole lot of arc or development or anything like that. It's more just sort of going along with this plot and with this scheme. And, and you know, aside from really, you know, trying to foil it when he can, there's not really a lot else that he does. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that's fairly standard across the Bond films. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for him to have like a meaningful arc as a protagonist in all of them, I'm sure. But um, yeah, it, it just didn't, it, it seemed like a very uh, one dimensional character, I guess. And that, uh, uh, yeah, didn't didn't really make it too appealing from my point of view. But yeah, it is more about the, the idea of the plot and just going along with that. Mm. And... I mean, he is very unlikable in this film, I have to say. Um, I mean, you know, Sean Connery in some of the other Bond films, in fact, even in this Bond film, he's playing the character well. It's just that the characters are, he's a scumbag, basically, in, in, in this film. And I think it's something that 
it, it doesn't it just feels really obvious in this film compared to other other films like other films with Roger Moore or the more recent ones with Daniel Craig he's just thoroughly thoroughly unlikable Robert (laughs) (laughs) um look he's not as charming in this one as in some other ones and there there isn't actually as much humor in Mm. this film as there is in some of the other films um he's he, he is a misogynist through and through and that's part of the character that's um, continued to this day. Um, and with regards to him having character arcs, um, there have been, in the early films, there was maybe the film before this one, was that Russia With Love, from Russia With Love? I believe so. Yes. The, he had an arc in that one, and they um, and that film had other issues as well, and people didn't respond to that one. I guess as well, they went back to just making him a stock standard audience surrogate character who's finding out the information as it goes along and um, and reacting. Basically, um, there's not there's not many moments that I can think of where he's ahead of the audience in this one because he gets captured uh, so early on and is on on the back foot for so much of the film, it's hard for him to be an active protagonist compared to some of the other plots. So it does, yeah. it does kind of feel like he's almost like a overgrown schoolboy as well. Like he's just, he's got all these toys that he's told not to use and, Oh, I'm still going to use them. And then I'll go and, you know, smack all the women's behinds and, you know, sleep my way around and then, you know, uh, muck up this villain's plot and just, cause as, as much obstruction as I can just kind of mm. um, it, it just just really feels like overgrown schoolboy hijinks in a way very much so and I think that's um, part of the the escapist fantasy of it for mm. all of the schoolboys that saw it at the time that they were the ones that were going to see it so yeah there is that appeal yeah um, yeah the kids that grew up watching this they're all the all the ones that still go and love it now. And then, and then I guess like for, for my age growing up watching it, it was a very different franchise because I grew up with like 90s Bond, but um, watching the 60s Bond is a very different experience for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I found uh, a couple of years ago we did uh, Doctor No. Um, and we also did Moonraker, um, but both of which are very different films. Uh, and oh, yeah. Doctor No... Very, very different pacing from from modern Bond, but because it was the oh, first yeah. one, um, it it was still sort of trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. Doctor No was quite interesting in that respect. Moonraker was as mad as a bag of cats. Like that, that was just <laughs> that one is well all over the place. It's incredible. Um, but but it's it, it, it's interesting how both of those films I kind of feel are slightly more they feel slightly more like traditional Bond films. This one, even though it's arguably the Bond film, which really set up a lot of the um, things that people associate with Bond, it's quite, it's quite different with Bond not having that agency, with, with um, just the fact that basically everything he does doesn't work. The only thing that he does that's kind of clever is how he kills Oddjob um, with, with the... Uh, electric cable and that that's like yeah that's clever that's that's sneaky but he'd kind of already done that in the start of the film with throwing the fan in the bath 
So yeah. it really well, don't felt- forget that he manages to overpower Pussy Galore and cure her of her lesbianism to save the day. So. <laughs> yes, yes, we we are we are going to address that. Um, and you know what? Let's talk about it right now because um, well, I think that's probably the most um, proactive thing he can do to stop the villainous plot in the film. Mm. Um, because it's womanized. They- Exactly, like that's the character trait that uh, that managed to save the day in in this case because um, his his original plan to, to which was clever if it had worked was to send a note with the, the tracking um, marker from in his shoe mm. and that just that whole plot point we spent like a good a good ten minutes of the film <laughs> following through on this plot and seeing how it goes only to have the guy get shot and the car crashed and the, lose the signal and mm. <laughs> and that's the end of it. And like, why, why do we spend so much time and elaborate setups for this if it just didn't go anywhere? Well, I, I, I suppose well, that would have been quite... That could have been quite novel at the time as well. The idea of like a plot point being a dead end and the idea of like a whole 10-minute arc of the film just being a red herring. Um, yeah. it, it could have been quite original i'm not entirely sure if it was uh, but you're right it is a bit weird um how that went so look pussy galore that's kind of the reason we're here because honor blankman uh, has has passed away um first of all as a bond girl um in in terms of the the pantheon that they have pussy galore is kind of right up there as being one of the most iconic um oh yeah and Carmen, I just wanted to know as a first-time viewer, what, what did you make of the character of Pussy Galore? I mean, the character... She kind of... Uh, just in terms of her appearance, she reminded me a lot of these 60s um, uh, heroines that we've seen in musicals. She actually reminded me a lot of um, Sally Ann Howes in terms of her appearance from uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, and I don't know if it was just like that was a fashionable look at the time that blonde buffant and the you know facial features and that kind of thing um i i like the fact that she was older as well like, i don't know if that's mm. typical for bond girls to be no not at all older it's a, it's a that's an anomaly it, yeah this is um she was 39 when they filmed this and that makes her the the oldest bond girl um there yeah. is there is some discussion around um I forget the actress's name, but in one of the more Monica recent, Bellucci? I, yes, I believe, I believe so. She was fifty-one, but there's some discussion about whether or not she counted as a Bond girl, or yeah. whether she was just a girl in a Bond film. Because there's, she, there's usually, there's usually a main Bond girl and then a, a side Bond. There's usually two in each film. Hmm. But but yeah, I mean, it was it's unusual for the the main Bond girl uh, to to be uh, as as old as as Honor Blackman was um well, but just older than James Bond yeah i think that's only happened twice uh but yeah it's it, it it's it, it is unusual but i think it actually really made sense for the character because um because pussy galore is quite a bit more independent than a lot of the other bond girls are and she mm. does seem to one up james bond like a, a lot of the time as well like when you know he escapes from the prison cell and she's the one who who gets him back um just i, I found those elements 
of her character and the fact that, you know, she had this, this team of flying circus girls that she mm. was able to train and, and lead. Like, that was all, like, kind of cool. I, I like that. Yeah. But then, of course, Judo. you know, subdued with a kiss that she didn't actually want. And then, oh, I'll, you know, go along with whatever James Bond wants from then on. Like, it's just, mm. it's, it's, it's frustrating. Don't yeah. do a lot of the character. <laughs> It's it, and again, it's it's one of those things of uh, again, films made in the sixties. It was I thought it was quite an interesting i it portrayal because it's obviously something from the book that Pussy Galore is is gay, um, and you know she says at one point, you know, I, I am immune to your charms, which I thought was a very sixties way of saying ah, ah, ah. <laughs> like that. I, <laughs> I, I am not a straight character. Uh, it's not coming out and, and stating it, but it's very much kind of codified language that the audience would understand mm. Mm. but and i thought that's kind of cool that would actually be really interesting to have a character playing a role that is normally this interaction that ends up as being sexual if it's not sexual if that's not on the table what does it look like oh he just made it sexual anyway with his with his license to to shag um like <laughs> it, it it is quite frustrating because I kind of feel it would have been a lot more interesting for him, for James and for Pussy Galore to have come to being on the same side without barn-based sexual assault. Yeah. Yep. Um, but that's also not the point of the film. The film, as you're saying, Robert, it's it's escapist fantasies for young straight men, particularly young straight white British and American men. Very much so. I mean, there, there's, there are, like, he does hint at the fact that, um, that Goldfinger is completely mad to her and she seems to be aware of that and mm. maybe thinking about that, um, about changing. Um, but we don't really know why she's with Goldfinger in the film. We don't mm. really know what he has over her what her interest in the matter is beyond the fact that she's getting paid a heap mm. of money. By I him. think, I think that's it. I, I really don't yeah, think it it's... just gets to fly. Yeah. She gets to run her Monty Python's flying circus uh, or whatever it was called that, um, you know, she gets to, she gets to be in charge of, but I, I think she's very much just using him as a means to an end. And mm. maybe the fact that she turned on a dime after her, um, encounter with James is maybe indicative of the fact that the only reason that she was supporting this plan was because she was getting paid and that's it um, mm. yeah it's it's an intriguing one um, and it's kind of just one of many 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 quite sexist things that happen in the film. Um, there's mm -hmm. the, as you said, the very highly foleyed, enthusiastic foleyed butt slap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, is is both, you know, like, and also a bit funny at the same time. Um, and it, it's kind of a tricky one because I, and Carmen, I feel like obviously we have to ask you this as, as a woman, is what, what, does, what, what does that do in terms of the movie watching experience in terms of films from this era. It, it, there are some people who I know who just damn right refuse to watch anything because they don't want to be, I suppose, supportive of mm. the behaviours that are in, inhabited. But at the same time, 
it is a it is a historical document. It doesn't mean that the behaviours in it are acceptable, but the discourse and behaviours that were happening at the time are quite different. So I was wondering where you kind of sit on that. Stand on that, yeah. Um, so I, again, so it's not really a film that is targeted to me as a female viewer. Um, and, you know, as such, it doesn't, it's not really something I identify with. And that's probably the main reason why I wouldn't go out and watch something like this in the first place. Mm. Um, it's just that I feel alienated to a certain extent um, as a viewer watching it, because I know that this film is not made for, for someone like me. Mm. Um, I think um, it's difficult because as you say, it is, it is a historically important film. I mean, I think it's been consistently rated as one of the great British films. Um, and I think sort of as with any kind of historical film, you kind of have to negotiate that um, recognition of the, the technical aspects of it that, that deserve recognition and, and a would have made it a good film whilst also acknowledging that, yes, there are some problematic elements that don't hold up today. And I guess make you appreciative of how far we've come in terms of filmmaking, in terms of having more inclusive films, more inclusive storytelling. Um, it, it just kind of highlights how far that element of filmmaking has progressed. Mm. Um, speaking of, um, film progression and things like that. I, I do think that um, one of the things that this film has, which we don't really see in later Bond films, is is quite a slow pace in the first half. Um, generally, I, I feel like there are more action set pieces in there. And for, for example, I don't think you would have a five to ten minute golf game with a Daniel Craig uh, Bond. Um, <laughs> I, I found watching that, I, I found watching that particular sequence quite uh, frustrating because you, I kind of felt like that scene could have been told in half the time. Mm. I think um, I, I, I'm thinking about Daniel Craig in, in the first James Bond film he was in. Um, there's an awful lot of poker playing in that and I'm not a poker player and me watching that, I guess, was not exactly thrilling. Mm. However, the thing that that, the poker game has is they've established stakes and they've established the characters and the, um, the kind of the, the subtextual game of power plays that's going on in the game is what keeps it interesting. Whereas this golf game, uh, we don't know how much Goldfinger knows about Bond and he's trying to just get an in with him. Um, and so the fact that he states at the end of the game that he knows exactly who Bond is and they've run into each other before mm. um, and just stop this ruse is, is a little bit um, of uh, a missed opportunity, I think, because if we had known that Goldfinger knew who Bond was at the start and didn't know that Bond didn't know who he was, Mm. Uh, then the power play of the golf game might have been a little bit more interesting just from a um, a writing perspective. However, it's just really a bit of a diversion and a bit of cheeky fun from Bond mm. swapping some balls around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 you, you're right. I, I, did, I think it is partly just that 
we weren't set up in the right way for that scene to be engaging. It does give us one of my favorite bits from uh, a James Bond film, any James Bond film. And it was one that I found very um, affecting, I guess, um, when I was a nine, 10 year old boy who watched these James Bond films, because these were on pretty high rotation on British TV when I was growing up in the late nineties, nearly two thousands. And so I'm there watching, Oh, what consent? We don't need to learn about that. Anyway. Um, but one of the things that they, they did show, uh, which still strikes with me is odd job who is a brilliant henchman for these films, just crushing that golf ball with his hand. And it's like, Oh my God, he's so tough. (laughs) <laughs> our job is uh, one of the classic villains mm, um, yeah so much so that he's yeah, also yeah, known as good. random task <laughs> yeah i just um i just kept thinking about austin powers during this film it was just like oh yeah they parodied that and they parodied that and, um mm. yeah wonderful think... when you um when you see the parody before you see the original um, yeah yeah it does um so often and you, you go back and watch these films you go oh that's where <laughs> that's <laughs> what it's from that's, they were actually, it wasn't just some really random, bizarre out of left field thing. Yeah. <laughs> Guy throwing a shoe. It was yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and and we, we haven't really discussed Goldfinger himself much. Um, and uh, Carmen, obviously, you recognised um, the, the actor who plays Goldfinger um, beforehand uh, because of his chitty chitty bang bang appearance. <laughs> Um, which, yeah, the other great Ian Fleming magical yeah, car pri- story. Priorities, yeah. yeah. Um, wh- what did you make of his performance in this film? Oh, look, it was good. I mean, the thing was, he had a very similar voice at times to his character in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I don't know, um, Robert, if you've seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but in I have. that, I yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to take him seriously after seeing him in that. Mm. Um, but it was... Um, no, I think it was a it was a good performance. I think it was um, perhaps a little bit understated, but that was fine. Like it fit well into the film. Mm. Um, I think the way the the plot sort of focuses on his schemes, it, it does kind of keep you sort of guessing about his character a little bit. And I feel like um, the way it was played kind of fit into that. Uh, made it made it mysterious and, and made it appealing. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought it was a good performance. Um, again, I don't really have many other Bond villains to compare it to. I imagine there's like a bald one with a cat somewhere, a la mm. Austin Powers. But um, yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't cartoonish, uh, like I imagine a lot of Bond villains to be. But it was. It was intriguing, I guess. Yeah. Robert, obviously, you have seen a few more of the Bond films. Um, where, where's Goldfinger for you, like, at least, in that kind of pantheon of, of Bond villains? Um, as, a, as a villain, mm. just rating by villains, yeah. I would say he's definitely up there. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's up. he would be up pretty high. He's probably one of the more famous ones. Mm. And um, I think his plan is, I know they altered it from the book a bit. Um, His plan is kind of crazy, but fun. It's a fun one. It's, it's maybe it's not quite flooding Silicon Valley, but it's, it's up there for sure. It certainly is. What what I like about him as a character is the, like the first thing we learn about him is that he hates to lose Mm. and then we get to see him lose um in those binocular close-ups um just close-ups of his face um just reacting Mm. um 
and I think there's there's quite a lot of humor there. <laughs> I think you can tell he's he's a pretty funny guy mm. um, from that. Um, and then of course he gets his vengeance. Um, but um, that's like that's just like the one character trait for Goldfinger is that he doesn't like to lose. So just don't get in his way. He gets mm. what he wants. Um, and he also loves gold. Um, and he loves gold. Mm. He's the man with the Midas touch. Yeah. Uh, so much so he is the man with the golden gun before we even have the man with the golden gun. Uh, which yeah, is great. It, was, it was fun to see that. <laughs> Watch out. Um, one of the things that um, I found really kind of interesting about Goldfinger um, is he, he, he is quite jovial, as you say. The only scene where he doesn't seem jovial is probably the famous scene from this film with the um, the laser cutter going towards the um, the dangly parts of, of Mr. Bond. Um, and yeah, that, yeah, and that, that, I mean, that is the iconic Bond villain interaction that I think every film subsequently has tried to recreate in one form or another. Um, and it's summed up perfectly in that you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Like, it's just... It's it is iconic and Carmen. I'm sure you would have probably come across those two lines just out in the wild in pop culture. Yeah, I, I can't remember where specifically, but yeah, multiple times. And obviously, there's that wonderful bit in The Simpsons as well with uh, Hank Scorpio. Yeah. Uh, Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It is an absolutely iconic moment. And as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, that's that's this film. There you go. Um, mm. Just it, it's permeated pop culture and it's become really emblematic of, of James Bond and the, those ridiculous James Bond traps that, what, I'm not going to watch him die. I'm just going to assume it all went to plan and leave the room now. This is what. Yeah. Um, and the final thing I want to discuss before we get to the trivia, uh, Carmen, you are a medical doctor. Um, Indeed. If I were to paint somebody head to toe in gold paint, would that kill them? Well, you wouldn't suffocate. Hmm. I'll say that. Okay. I guess it would. We, it must depend on the... I was having to think about this. It must depend on the type of paint you use. Hmm. Because I imagine if you were to die, you'd probably die from like a lack of heat regulation and overheating. Hmm. So if you used an oil-based paint, maybe you would sweat and your sweat wouldn't evaporate as well and you wouldn't be able to get rid of the paint and maybe you would overheat that way. Hmm. Um, if you used a water-based paint, maybe you would start sweating and the paint would come off and you'd probably be able to regulate your temperature a bit better um but certainly you wouldn't suffocate like they were saying in in the film i don't think that's maybe i don't know like because it, it does make me uh think of that uh rumor from the wizard of oz that actually turned out to be true about um poor buddy ebsen as the tin man mm. uh where he had the aluminum uh paint on and it caused uh, respiratory issues and he had to step out of the film mm. um i'm wondering if it's kind of something that was maybe indirectly inspired by that i don't know um, yeah, I mean, again, another iconic image from this film and from the Bond franchise at large. But watching it, it, it did make me go, uh, "Is that is that true?" Yeah, are we are we actually amphibious? Do we breathe through our skins? Yeah. No. So uh, yeah, but but look, I think it's it's in keeping with a lot of this film, where it's like cool idea, maybe not terribly well executed. But as as Robert was pointing out before, it Bond films do seem to exist in a sort of almost fantasy land um, of yeah. like almost a musical theatre style reality, which I think is a is kind of a good mindset to have for watching these films. <laughs> 
Uh, would you guys like some trivia about Goldfinger? I would yes. love some trivia. All of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, the first bit of trivia we have is that Sh- uh, Sir Sean Connery never actually travelled to the United States for this film. Uh, in order to make this film, all of his scenes were filmed in Pinewood Studios in London. Um, this explains why Bond flips a light switch down to discover the, the golden corpse of Jill, as British light switches are usually flicked on by turning them down instead of up. So, yeah, he never actually was in Miami at all. That would explain oh. all of the amazing rear projection. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of it in the, in the opening sequences. I think it's because most of the cast never did go over there. Um, in fact, uh, the um, Cess Linda, who played Felix, I think was the only actor who was actually in Miami at any point during the production of this film. So <laughs> everyone else was just on sets in London, which is kind of nice. Um, weird technical thing, but it's something I, I picked up and maybe someone out there might be interested, but feel free to cut this if not. Okay. Um, I think uh, most of it was rear projection. However, there were a bunch of scenes, uh, including some of the car process shots that had a faint white outline around um, the edges of the mat. And that mm. makes me believe that um, they used a sodium vapor process instead of blue screening, which oh, is quite okay. a rare thing because um, Disney has a, a, a the patent for that and they had the only working camera that can do a sodium vapor screen, which is like a yellow screen okay. in the world, which makes me think they might have used that. I know Hitchcock used it for a bunch of his scenes too, but it makes it that they can film without that blue tinge around the edges do, of do you know what uh, films Disney use that for? They use it for Mary Poppins, famously. Uh, it was yeah. For. yeah. That's right. what, I was wondering if it was that chalkboard sequence. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's how it was invented. Wow. Um, wow. So there's a, there's a bit of <laughs> possible trivia. I don't know. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I like it. Yeah, like that's it. cool. That's yeah. cool. Bonus trivia is great, um, by all means. Uh, the next bit that I have is that uh, when Dame Shirley Bassey recorded the theme song, she was singing as the opening credits were running on a screen in front of her so that she could match the vocals. When she hit her final high note, the titles kept running and she was forced to hold the note until she almost passed out. Uh, this was something that they then decided to repeat with uh, Tom Jones's Thunderball theme uh, a year or two later. Um, yeah, so she's just there going, oh my God, how long is this going to go? She's essentially a singing Ron Burgundy with the teleprompter. Yeah. I guess you couldn't really, you know, practice it at any point before that because, you know, the film wouldn't have been accessible. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a rough way to, to record. Yeah, um, it, it is a great theme song, though. Oh, it's, it is, yeah, it's really it's a classic. Good. Mm. And, and Rob, you wanted and, to touch on some of the music uh, scoring for this film. Oh yeah, um, I just I I really do love John Barry's score. He always goes really heavy on the brass. You can tell he was a jazz musician and grew up mm. in brass bands. And his music um, in this uh, one has some particularly uh, smooth jazz kind of underpinnings within a, a spy film. And there was a section where he found the, the, um, the golden girl that I never realised this before, but I just recognised it as the sample that was used in Six Underground by the Sneaker Pimps. It's like, that's the basis of their entire song. Mm. I never knew, but I'm pretty sure it's, that's, that's where it's from. That is exactly where it's from. That was actually another bit of trivia. So well spotted, Rob. 
Ah, I was, yeah, that was like, ah, this is where it's from. Kind of, kind of like the, you expect me to die. Um, I expect you to die, Mr. Bond. Like, mm. um, always fun finding things out, watching old movies. Absolutely is. This film is also notable, amongst many other reasons, for being the first film to have the appearance of a laser beam. Oh, the first great. film ever? Apparently, according, according to wow. this. Um, That's origi- pretty cool. In the original novel, it's a spinning buzzsaw. Um, but <laughs> Another they de- classic trick. Exactly, but they decided that it was uh, too commonplace because it was being widely used in lots of films. And so they were like, we need to come up with something else. And so... They it's used... great storytelling, really, because then they use it again um, to break into Fort Knox. So mm. that's like yeah. that's economy of storytelling. That's something that you've already set up that you can use again. Yeah, but they didn't um, have sharks with laser beams attached to their forehead, and that makes no. me sad. <laughs> Not in this film. <laughs> Uh, the recreation of Fort Knox uh, at Pinewood Studios was incredibly accurate, considering no one involved in the movie had been allowed inside the real location for security reasons. The set looked so real that a 24-hour guard was placed at the Fort Knox set so that pilferers would not steal the gold bar props. A letter to the production from the Fort Knox controller congratulated Ken Adams and his team on their recreation. Uh, Goldfinger's 3D model map uh, used for Operation Grand Slam is now housed as a permanent exhibition in the real Fort Knox. That's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, so good design. To the production design team, that's awesome work. Yeah, yeah. and if you get a letter from Fort Knox going, hey, hey, this seems too good, you can be like, yes. Yes. <laughs> what I want to know, though, is, is with the model, can you actually walk underneath it and stick your head up? Oh, I hope Fort so. Knox and listen to people? <laughs> what is this? A bolt for ants? That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> um, Gert Frob spoke very little English, so British actor Michael Collins dubbed in most of his lines for this film. Um, Guy Hamilton, the director of this film, instructed Frob to speak his lines in German very quickly, which would assist with the dubbing. Reportedly, though, uh, Frob was speaking English in a few scenes, um, and occasionally some of his lines actually made it into the film. Uh, apparently, uh, the line, Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond, it may be your last, is his actual voice. Okay. Mm. There was one bit uh, where he was uh, in the factory in Geneva and explaining his plan, and uh, it was quite clear that his lips weren't moving at all, but his voice was going. um, And I was like, oh, that's a bit... Yeah. That sticks out. It's weird because they they ADR so much of these old movies. um, Sometimes it's just commonplace that the lips just don't match up, and uh, Mm. I think I'm just, like, used to watching it. not always easy to tell, but to replace someone's voice completely. I wonder if that means that his voice was replaced in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know um, if I ever read anything about it being replaced. Mm-hmm. But that was four years later. Maybe he had a chance to practice his English. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is entirely possible. Now, of course, one of the other outstanding things about this film is that Pussy Galore's name is Pussy Galore. Uh, which, um, as yep. far as like comedy Bond names go, 
is right up there in terms of <laughs> it, it's it's almost so far gone it feels like they weren't trying in that respect um but mm. in the original script when she introduces herself as pussy galore uh, instead of replying with i must be dreaming he says i know you are but what's your name uh this was deemed oh. yeah this was deemed too suggestive and was changed or it uh, was changed to the new line uh, because obviously they wanted to be able to show this movie in as many places as they could in lots of places had even more strict rules over what could be shown there than they do now. So yeah, um, a little bit of censorship coming in there. Um, Probably for the best. Yeah. Probably yeah. Best. yeah. I think, I think I must be dreaming is actually a reasonably funny response as, as opposed to what they originally had. <laughs> um, I still reckon you should have just done like a schoolboy smirk, just like, yeah, just. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this is an interesting one. Michael Caine um, has obviously never appeared in a Bond film, but he was the first person to hear the score for this film. Um, he and his roommate at the time, Terence Stamp, were ejected from their apartment, and Caine asked his friend John Barry if he could use the spare room at Barry's house. Uh, they were good friends, and Caine basically crashed in Barry's house for several months. Um, and spent a lot of his time being kept awake at night by Barry doing the scoring for this film. Um, eventually, one morning at breakfast, Barry played the composition for Kane, making him the first person uh, to ever hear the score that wasn't involved in its creation. Pretty cool. What I like about this piece of trivia is that Terence Stamp and Michael Kane were roommates. Were roommates. And not, not only were they roommates, a... they got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's gotta be some stories there <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah no, no like so, to be their neighbors. well yeah exactly but yeah no michael kane uh, not doing too bad for himself there um now the producers originally wanted orson wells to play goldfinger but wells oh, was god <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sorry. I'm just imagining this new version of Goldfinger, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I always, I always felt that Drax from Moonraker was very much them going, "What if Orson Welles was in one of these films?" But, <laughs> but the idea of him being Goldfinger, it does appeal to me. They didn't go for him because they felt that he was too expensive. Um. Gertrude when he was picked, did eventually start arguing over his salary because he wanted 10% of the movie's earnings and the producers eventually oh, wow. started to think, maybe we should have just gone for Orson Welles. He might have worked <laughs> out cheap. Um, Ian Fleming partially based the character of Goldfinger from the novel on the controversial modernist architect, Erno Goldfinger. Um, when he learned that Fleming was using uh, his name uh, for the villain of his new James Bond novel, he threatened to file a lawsuit against Fleming's publisher in an effort to stop the publication. Fleming's publisher then contacted Ian Fleming to request that he change the surname. So he changed the surname to Goldprick. <laughs> uh, pu the publishers, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the publishers then realizing that it was probably easier to deal with Goldfinger than it was with Fleming uh, settled with the architect out of court. Isn't isn't uh, Austin Powers? Isn't it Gold Member? It is Gold Member. Yeah, Gold Member. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's gold. It's gold. It's gold. It's solid gold, as I believe the song goes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's just comforting in a way to know that Ian Fleming really does explain why there are so many problematic elements to to the adaptations of his books. 
because oh yeah he, he would be an insufferable person much like Roald Dahl I think they would both be absolutely insufferable people yeah um great stories but mm. as people uh yeah not so much <laughs> yeah uh, due to the popularity and success of this movie, and indeed the spy car, the Aston Martin DB5, and this was the first film in, I believe, eight that that car has appeared as the Bond car, um, mm. the vehicle gained the nickname the most famous car in the world. Sales of the Aston Martin DB5 increased by 50% after the release of this movie. Is that the one that was crushed? Uh, no, it was the one that crashed no. into the wall. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. the one that they... they, they um specked out with a bunch of of uh machine guns cool and gadgets yeah cool gadgets yeah i did think that was a very nice car yeah and i mean i mean daniel craig's had it in i think at least two of his his films as well so like it, and it, it didn't look out of place in those films it because become the the iconic bond car mm. the aston martin it's during the associated with character right <laughs> During the promotion of the film, Anna Blackman took delight in embarrassing interviewers by repeatedly mentioning her character's name when she noticed they were uncomfortable <laughs> with it. <laughs> Which, I guess you've got to have some fun with it. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing a character with that name, you, surely you you you've set a tone for for what you're going to be doing. Like, yeah. You know what you're getting, right? <laughs> pretty, pretty much. I also like the fact, uh, another bit of trivia, is that um, Honor Blackman um, could perform judo. Um, and so the producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli, um, because they really wanted her to play Pussy Galore, they wrote that into the character in the adaptation. They changed it so that oh, she cool. would have she would have opportunities to do judo. Because she did, she did that in um, the Avengers. She did. In fact, she had to stop being in the Avengers um, to to make this film. She left the show uh, to to be in this this massive film. Um, ah. But yeah, she she absolutely was doing a lot of that in the Avengers as well. So I I, I do think that's quite cool that they um, they threw that in. Um, Long before Led Zeppelin became a household name, London-based session guitarist Jimmy Page featured as a rhythm player on the title song of this film. So there's a little bit of Led Zeppelin in here as well. There you go. <laughs> nice. Mm. Um, the Oh, speaking of uh, spend, uh, censorship as well, we spoke before about, um, obviously, some of the lines around um, Bond referring to Posse Galore. One of the other issues that this film had was with the Chrysler Corporation. Um, they were one of the sponsors for the movie for its American television premiere. This was the first Bond film that was ever put on uh, television in 1972, I believe. Um, at their insistence, Goldfinger's line about automobiles killing 60,000 Americans every two years was edited out of the TV broadcast. <laughs> I mean, everything else is fine, you know, all the misogyny and the uh, and the forced kissing and yeah. whatnot, that's, that's totally fine, but no, we can't talk bad about cars. Yeah, we can't talk about road accidents, we're trying to sell cars here! <laughs> ah! <laughs> Brilliant. Um, apparently, Gert Fraub was so bad at golf that uh, he had a double for that scene. Um, they had a double <laughs> that could actually hit the ball. <laughs> I empathise with the poor man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's um, he's unfortunate. Now, the name Pussy Galore itself was potentially not going to be allowed in this film because the censors had a real hard time with a character named Pussy. Um, they were really more interested in, can't you call her 
kitty galore or miss galore or something else like that um and the director guy hamilton basically said and this is from an interview this is he said how they got around it he said if you were a 10 oh sorry quote if you were a 10-year-old boy and you knew what the name meant, you weren't a 10-year-old boy, you were a dirty little bitch. The American censor was concerned, but we got around that by inviting him and his wife out for dinner and telling them that we were big supporters of the Republican Party, end quote. <laughs> that's and that's crazy. Hollywood. Yeah, I just like, he's like, ah, oh, we're Republicans. Oh, it's fine. Use the word then. That's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, Guy Hamilton, he, he got his film made the way he wanted. Um, and you, you, it was a, you have to respect that somewhat. Um, Milton Reed lobbied unsuccessfully for the role of Oddjob and suggested at one point that Harold Sakata, the actor who eventually played Oddjob, and he should wrestle to decide who gets the part. Okay. <laughs> Because I know he was a wrestler, wasn't he? Um, He was. And he did end up getting a part in a Bond film. He was the henchman Sandor in The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977. But I just really... It does sound like quite a cool spin-off movie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just love the idea of him going like, I really want this role. Let's wrestle. Let's let's just have a fight (laughs) to decide who gets it. It feels like a very Oliver Reed way of deciding the casting. Um. The, this movie, Goldfinger, is one of two movies that influenced the creation of the comic book, manga, and animated TV series, Speed Racer. Uh, the... Go-Go! <laughs> That's right! Um, yes, um, <laughs> the, the creator, uh, Tatsuo Yoshida, uh, said that um, specifically the car... Uh, from Goldfinger was one of the main inspirations and that the character of Speed Racer was inspired by Elvis Presley in Viva Las Vegas from 1964. That's delightful. I was going to say, when I saw those um, those spinning blades come out of the wheels of the Aston Martin, I, I did immediately think of Speed Racer because mm. um, that's, that's an iconic thing from Speed Racer too. <laughs> yeah. That is six gadgets. <laughs> It certainly is. Now, um, Anthony Newley and Leslie Bricuse were asked to create the lyrics for Goldfinger with all those lovely internal rhymes uh, that you like so much, Robert. Um, When composer John Barry played the first three notes, uh, they both looked at each other and sang out loud, wider than a mile to the tune of Moon River. Uh, Apparently, Barry was not amused by this. (laughs) So did they write the lyrics to it? Mm. They wrote the lyrics to Goldfinger, yeah. But it's it's more just the fact. um, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, they were they they um did Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as well, didn't they? And uh, Doctor Doolittle, which Mm. uh, was not that great. But uh, yeah, that's cool. I did not know (laughs) they did uh, Goldfinger as well. The lyrics. They they certainly did. And that and that they wrote it to the song that had already been written. Written. Mm. The thing that just kind of stuck with me for the rest of this though having read that before watching this today was how much Goldfinger sounds like Moon River um, and that's <laughs> the, the start of it is the exact same intervals it, yeah, it yeah. is so that is right. that is in there now um, Gertrude <laughs> had serious reservations about Goldfinger using nerve gas to get rid of witnesses he felt that with him being German this scene would have um, implications to do with Nazism um, and you know fair enough it's only 20 yeah, years fair. after the war um, this movie Not was banned. Nazi gold? 
Well, there is that too. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure the Bank of England guy refers to the Nazis at some point as well. Um, yes, yeah, because yeah. the, 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 the chunk of gold that he has was from like a Nazi gold um, yeah. find. Uh, anyway, the, the movie was banned in Israel for many years because Gert Frobe was revealed to have been a member of the Nazi party um, in, his, in his younger days. Uh, the ban was lifted, though, after a Jewish Camley came forward uh, praising Phobe for protecting them from persecution during World War Two. Oh. Wow, mm. that's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, it's it's one of the things that I always forget about films, particularly uh, from the early sixties and late fifties, is that it is really quite soon after the Second World War. Yeah. It feels mm. it, the, because I think it's partly because the film technology changed so much from the forties to the sixties that it feels like mm. it, it must have been a much longer time. But the, the fact of the matter is, is pretty much everyone in these productions has memories of the war uh, or yeah. was involved in the war. And I think it's really interesting seeing how those impacts play out sometimes. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Harold Sakata, odd job, uh, severely burnt his hand filming his death scene. Um, when he reached out, one of the pyrotechnics caught his hand and burnt him. But he kept on acting because he wanted to, to do it right. So he he's actually got a burnt hand when he's grabbing onto the hat and going, ah! So some of that might be real Aww. screams of pain. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, so that is that is not good at all. Um, but a consummate professional. Well, yeah, exactly. Everything he does. Throwing hats. I, were you... I, one of the things that disappointed me a little bit as we, as we finish with trivia um, is that when the character of Tilly Masterson is killed by the hat that there the, the just doesn't seem to be that indication of damage that the statue being decapitated about five <laughs> minutes before had kind of set up. And I get well, why... Yeah, this censorship, um, yeah. like, what they can, can and can't show. And I'm sure if, like, her head just got completely sliced up, <laughs> they might not have gotten away with it. But I feel like... Well, you I could... did actually wonder, was she dead for a bit? It was like, hmm. it wasn't really until yeah. the music started getting all dramatic. I was like, oh, I guess she is okay, yep. And that's just it. She essentially just looked asleep. Um, it, it, I do feel as though they could have, I don't know, some bruising, a little bit of light blood on the corner of the mouth, something to indicate something. that the hat had done damage other than the fact that she was just lying still. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Mm. Yeah, But then we a... don't get the great Bond reveal. He gets to go over there and double check. And that's true. Like, oh, no. Now I really hate Goldfinger. Yeah. Before, like what, that one girl, I was like, whatever. But this is two girls I could have had sex with. Now it's personal. <laughs> yeah. How <laughs> day. I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to, the next woman I see, regardless of who they are, I'm just going to have to convince. Uh, and for some reason, it didn't count uh, my favorite character in the film, which was the grandmother with the machine gun. Yay! I love the grandmother with the machine gun. Yeah, but she she seems more like James's type. You know, she knows her way around weapons. She's not afraid to fight. I I could totally see James being like, actually, if we weren't shooting at me, <laughs> I think something could happen here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, anyway, it's a it's a glorious image. Mm. Mm. It is, and again, it feeds into that ever so slight. Well not so slight, but that campness that is in these Bond films, which I think oh, they really, totally. they yeah. leaned on a lot more. It is more fantastical, once. definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved when he came out at the beginning with the duck on his head. That yes. was oh, man. fantastic. It's so unnecessary, and it's so, 
just so silly. It really does make me think, God, James Bond is not a good spy. He's not. <laughs> like, he's, he's rubbish. Really, like, especially in this film, like, he just gets captured straight away. Firstly, like, he just blatantly tells everyone his name. He's very mm. proud of his name. Everyone knows who he is. Um, <laughs> and he just gets captured immediately and is, is on the back foot for this entire film. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's only because of his blatant, misogyny that <laughs> gets anywhere gets, saves the day oh. and even he knows that he is a problem with his relationships with women because then when he starts chasing after tilly in the car and he goes no you've got to concentrate he's like giving himself a pep talk yes yeah, pep talk about self-control and it's like so you know about self-control james but you've not been practicing it for any of these films it's just like Oh, I'd shake you, except you'd kill me somehow. <laughs> Two American agents, they're just, yeah, that's our James. Mm-hmm. As if, like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting and weird mishmash of feelings. But that's Goldfinger. And um, that's a film that we now have to score. And Carmen, you get to go first. What score would you give Goldfinger out of 10? Um, okay, so I'm going to go six fairly obvious hair pieces worn by Sean Connery out of ten. Yeah, they're, they're a little little obvious. But, you know, I mean, he was yeah. going bold since he was 21. So, you know, he kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of had to do it. And look, in fairness, he's a, he's a you know, good, good looking man um, and stayed a very good looking man for a long time in his life. So, um, you know, I think just, just because he's a bit thin on top, I, I think he did all right otherwise. Uh, what about yourself, Robert? Uh, what, what would you give this film? Um, I would probably give it... Oh, God. Uh, I would probably also give it six. Six gold Nazi ingots out of ten. Yeah. I, I'm about there as well. I, I kind of feel... Th- there's a little bit of me that's a bit afraid that this film could have been a lot worse. Um, and... <laughs> That that's that's kind of a slightly scary thought, but it's um, I mean it's good in a lot of what it, it aims to do. It aims to be entertaining and escapist fantasy um, action essentially. And whilst maybe its aims and its worldview are not something that I agree with in the slightest, um, it's it's it does actually achieve what it sets out to do. Um, and there are great elements to this. I really like the fact, <clears throat> I really like the fact we got a payoff for when he's first in the plane, Bond and, and Pussy, and he says, don't fire that gun in here because you'll rip a hole in the fuselage. And then in the final confrontation, Goldfinger and him struggle. And we see that happen. And we see Goldfinger get sucked out of the plane to his death. Um mm. Like I did like that this film did actually kind of follow up on things that it set up throughout the film. Uh, not just the usual, you know, here's a gadget. Oh, then we get to see the gadget used in the one instance where it's useful. I actually felt that they honoured those things a bit more than you get in other more moonrakery James Bond films. Uh, so, <laughs> totally. yeah, for me, I, I, quite, I, I quite enjoyed it, but at the same time, it is one of those things where it's not really my film. So, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it six deadly hats out of ten. Um, <laughs> it's it, it 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 was a it was a nice way to spend a, a weekend afternoon, and, and I feel like it's one of those kind of like rainy Sunday 
films yeah uh, yeah, yeah i would agree with that yeah yeah um so that brings us to the end of this review robert and carmen thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the cinema catch-up club thank you for having Thanks. us yeah it was fun and for those of you listening at home thank you for listening in hey we're gonna keep reviewing films each and every week and there's lots of ways uh that you can partake in that what you expect me to subscribe? Yes, I do. Uh, you need to go over to uh, ooh, SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else that you can get good podcasts. Um, just search for us there. What? You expect me to like the Facebook page? Yes. Yes, I do. Go over to the Facebook page, give it a like, and do all that. And also, I expect you to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. Um, there are many bonus features that uh, our lovely patrons get um if you feel as though you'd like to become a member you can become a member for as little as a dollar a month that is that is a tiny amount of money that's you know goldfinger loves money he'd probably not even stop to to pick up a dollar though probably because it's not made of gold uh but you can check out the patreon if you would like to we really really appreciate your support there but that is all for this week so until next time goodbye You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.